HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. HRN is food radio supported by you. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, a supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. For more information, visit corin.com. Hello, welcome to Japanese. I'm your host, Taki Kotema, a food writer, the director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from Brooklyn, New York. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every day in the supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, izakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is a still mystery for many people, and I try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is David Schlosser, who is the chef owner of Shibumi in downtown LA. Shibumi opened in 2016, and shortly afterwards, it, uh, it earned lots of accolades from various prominent media, including the LA Times' Jonathan Gold, who ranked Shibumi number two restaurant of the whole city. And currently, Shibumi holds one Michelin star. David was classically trained in Japan and soulfully serves authentic Japanese dishes at Shibumi. But originally, he used to cook French cuisine at Michelin-starred restaurants in France. So today, we'll discuss how David got into Japanese food, his training at top kaiseki restaurant in Japan, his philosophy of cooking Japanese cuisine, and much, much more. But before you start, Japan is available on the Heritage Radio Network website, as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, and Spotify as a podcast. So please go to iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, whichever you listen to, and subscribe to Japan Needs. And please write away view. We really appreciate your feedback. And uh, I have a quick announcement. So I'm very thrilled to let you know that Japan Needs has been nominated for Viewer's Choice for Best Food or Drink Podcast. Viewer's Choice for Best City or Regional Program and Viewer's Choice for Best Single Topic Series at the 14th Annual Taste Awards. So what is Taste Awards? A Taste Awards is often considered as the Oscars of food, and I am honored to be among the incredible nominees and immensely grateful to you, our listeners. And um, I'm asking you for your help. Um, so please take a moment to vote for Japan Needs in these three viewers' choice categories. Again, it's Best Food or Drink Podcast, Best City Original Program, 
and best single topic series. And every vote counts, and you can cast your vote until February the 17th. And in order to vote, please go to the tasteawards.com, um, click on the red box, submit your viewer's choice votes. And thank you so much for your support. And again, thank you for listening to Japanese. Now, let's start a conversation with David Schlosser. Hello, David. Welcome to the show. Hi, Akiko. Thanks for having me. So, yeah, this is exciting. I've been hearing about you and、uh, you read about you in Japanese magazine, and you're obviously very important in the Japanese food industry. So, so, first of all, to get to know you, where are you from and what did you eat when you grew up? I am from Santa Monica, California. And what did I eat when I grew up?、Um, it wasn't Asian food, I'll tell you that.、Um, I ate, I guess, pretty basic. Um, my mother is Egyptian, so we was, I was actually grew up with a lot of、um, Middle Eastern food as well hummus and pita,、um, different marinated eggplant dishes,、um, kube. So it was nice to get some, I guess, culture, culinary wise, outside of American cuisine. Mm, right. Well, I, I've been really discovering how diverse and deep the Middle Eastern food culture is. And、uh, yeah, I, I understand why you really got into different aspects of food experience on your palate. So, so we'll、yeah. get into that Japanese aspect in a moment. But do you think your Middle Eastern exposure kind of expanded your palate? Yeah, I would say it did. A little bit,、mm. um, but I wouldn't say a lot because the dishes were kind of simple.、Um, we also didn't、uh, dine at restaurants much, so that didn't, I didn't really was exposed to that much variety.、Um, but I definitely didn't think it hurt.、Mm. Okay. And then,、uh, so you became a French chef first before you started cooking Japanese cuisine. And so you graduated from the CIA,、uh, the Culinary Institute of America, so called Harvard of the Culinary World, in 1996 and worked at the top French restaurants, including LA's Laurangerie and Mission Star restaurants in France, including Georges Blanc and Luc Carton. So, how did you get into cooking in the first place? Um, well, I, was, I graduated high school. I was going to Santa Monica Junior College.、Um, I didn't enjoy it very much.、Um, I, was I was able to get a job next door to my apartment in Venice Beach.、Um, the place was called 72 Market. It was owned by Dudley Moore, a pretty high profile restaurant in the 90s. And I don't know, I had a slight interest in cooking. It was just a summer job. I was going to go back to school in the fall. And Yeah, I mean, when August, September came, I just I called my mom and said, Mom, I want to stay.、Um, I was really fell in love with the whole culture and everything about this restaurant.、Hmm. So,、um, so that's kind of, it was kind of unexpected. I ended up,、um, yeah, I ended up staying for over a year and ended up being my, my life passion. Interesting. Well, so do you think it was the energy of the kitchen that attracted you? I don't know. You know, it's funny. I didn't even really get to work in the kitchen.、Um, I was actually working in the basement as a prep cook in the morning with some Hispanic guys that、uh, spoke no English. <laughs> so、uh, it was really, I don't know, you'd think it would be kind of a tough thing, but I, I just loved it.、Um, I'm not really sure why. I feel like this whole path was chosen by something else.、Um, 
but yeah, I don't know. I just, I really loved it. The chef was just like fresh off of France, you know, heavy accent, typical, you know, classically t- trained fret, uh, chef. Um, I just loved it. I don't know. Mm. I ended up, ended up, I ended up going to the Culinary Institute of America after working there for a little over a year. And, and that's when it really took off. And I'm like, wow, this is, this is it. This mm. is what I want to do. So, right. Well, obviously, you survived the training in French kitchens in France and <laughs> the Michelin style restaurants. So, yeah, I'm sure this is something, some kitchen culture had a magnet to you. Um, but why did you decide to switch from cooking French to Japanese food? So, gosh, what was it? It was, um, it was the year 2000, and I basically went on a holiday with, um, with my friend in Thailand, we had a, uh, it was my first time in Asia. We had a quick uh, three-day tr- uh, layover in, in Japan. And we kind of did all our research on Thailand and didn't know anything about Japan. I didn't have Japanese friends, um, didn't eat Japanese food that much. Um, anyhow, so when I was there, just for those three days, it completely blew my mind. I went to uh it was funny. I, I went, we were looking for sushi for days. I couldn't even find it. Uh, it was sushi was just, I was reading all this other non sushi food. Anyhow, we went to a, a restaurant, a sushi place and I just, just dropped dead. I mean, I, I started crying at the, at the table. My, my body thought I was weird. And I'm like, this is, this is intense. Like, uh, that's kind of when I, it, it decided me for me to change, um, to, to Japanese cuisine. I was in Thailand and I just was thinking about Japan every day. It was there. It was. It was so. It was quite odd. Uh, I feel like it was chosen. Mm, right. I think you. You're very open-minded. Your energy is so open to new things. So they choose yeah. you rather than mm. you before you know it. So that's amazing. Um, yeah. Yeah. So then, how did you study Japanese food? How? Um, well, um, some years later, I uh, I went to live in. I lived in Thailand. Actually, I was working at a hotel, and when I ended up I coming back because I did not love, I guess, the lifestyle, the cuisine, because I, I knew at that point I wanted to be in Japan. Um, my good friend Nick was working um, at a restaurant called Gunza Sushiko in Beverly Hills. Uh, and this was in 2002. Um, and, you know, at the time, it might have been the best sushi restaurant in the United States. Uh, Masa Takayama, obviously you know him, is, is a New York force. Um, you know, he was working there and I basically asked Nick, I said, hey, could, could you get me a job? And, you know, he ended up uh, pulling some strings. I ended up meeting Masa-san and uh, yeah, I became the first uh, foreigner, I guess, to work for him um, at the time. Oh, wow. And that Nick is uh, now the chef owner of uh, Shuko. In New yes. York, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Honored, honored. <laughs> it's amazing. It's a family yeah. of talented. Yeah, it's small family. Small family. Nick ended up staying with Masa for ten years, so um, he deserves everything. Mm. Um, but um, but yeah, so I, he ended up getting me a job there, and that was my first, you know, experience at a Japanese restaurant. And you know, it's kind of like jumping into a Ferrari when you're 16. It's like it sets you up real. <laughs> Real strong for driving, you know. You're like, oh wow, okay. Um, and it's funny because at that time I worked at you know four different three Michelin restaurants in France, and I, I've seen some high level you know cuisines, I guess, culinary. Um, 
but Masa was such a, I don't know, such a force. Uh, it was very different. And I completely fell in love with the environment, the attitude, the passion. And yeah, and then that was like my second um, epiphany where I'm like, oh, wow, th- now I really know that this is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when I, so that's kind of how it got started for me. He ended up getting um, influenced by Thomas Keller to go open in, in Time Warner Center at that time. And he opened a couple of years later in Time Warner, um, asked me to come to New York. And I told him I didn't want to go because I, I really want to go to Japan and study non-sushi. So he left and, you know, stayed in touch. And I ended up uh, working at uh, Urasawa, which was his uh, kohai. Um, yeah, protege kind of thing. Protege, yeah. So I ended up opening that with him. And, you know, again, it, it was incredible. But uh, I, I knew I wanted to go to Japan to study non on sushi. Mm, right. Well, we'll discuss that, uh, how you train yourself uh, in Japan later. But um, so uh, you also, uh, actually, let's talk about that. So you before you opened Shibumi, so you went to Japan, right? Like you planned and then you worked at the American Embassy as a chef and also um, the Ashima Kitchen in Kyoto, which is really the kind of shrine of Japanese cuisine. So uh, how did you get there? And then uh, what did you learn from these experiences in Japan? Um, yeah, so I, I'm so honored by, uh, you know, life guys out there. It's just, it's all relationships, really, uh, especially in Japan. Because, you know, even when you get there, um, they're not really welcoming so much to foreigners, especially back in 2003, 2004. This was like pre, you know, not pre-internet, but pre a lot of things. Um and I was lucky enough to be colleagues with uh, someone named Sam Ota. And Ota-san took me under his wing. Um, he went to the Conner Institute in the, in the 80s and kind of mentored me a little bit and had long relationships with a lot of uh, famous chefs in, in Japan. So I ended up uh, asking him for a job. And um, he was able to get me um, a position at Kikunoi at the time, uh, which is in Kyoto. Right. Um, so that kind of led to me able to work at a, a couple other Kaiseki restaurants, one called Miyamaso, which was a, wow. an amazing uh, nakahigashi. Uh, yeah. Um, oh my God, that's really restaurant the... Back, back in the day. Right, but still now they really represent how you can create totally sustainable farm to table, like literally farm to table. Um, yeah, the foraging... Cuisine. Yeah, they were doing foraging, you know, decades before Noma, you know, kind of a thing uh, where Noma got the credit, but everyone knew Miyamaso was it. Like they were so strict. They didn't serve fish from the ocean. Mm-hmm. All fish was from a river and all the, uh, a lot of the ingredients were foraged in the mountains. Um, they had a pickling house where they were doing pickles for 5, 10, 20 years aged picklings, um, skimono. Um, so really advanced uh, classical kaiseki stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, again, like really strange that I was there because all the cooks were like, why are you here? You know, they, <laughs> they couldn't believe I was there. Um, my Japanese was getting quite good there. Um, obviously, there was 0.0 English anywhere to be found. So uh, that was good for my learning abilities of getting getting really good at it. And yeah, just being in Kyoto, I realized that I should have been there longer. Mm. 
for culinary wise, if you want to learn about Japan, Kyoto is better than Tokyo for, for me. Right. So what do you see? Um, I think there are two part questions. So what was your biggest learning? And also what was uh, what part of Japanese cuisine attracted you so much? I mean, you know, exposing yourself to the depths, the deepest part of Kyoto Kaisei cuisine. What was it? Um, probably the lack of fat. So in French cuisine, or I'd say a lot of Western cuisine, um, the chefs will need to use the butter. Italians, they need to use the olive oil. Um, if you tell a chef, a Western chef, to make me a 10-course meal and you can't use any oil, butter, or cream, or dairy, they're going to have some troubles. They will definitely have some troubles. They'll say, oh, that's some like healthy shit. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, Japan doesn't rely on, obviously, dairy or added oils in any of their cuisine, uh, for, with the exception of tempura. Um, because what they do is they base satiation on umami. And people kind of overuse that word. And I think they don't know what they're talking about. They don't know what really umami is. People overuse the word. But if you still start understanding how Japanese uh, treat umami and what it is and harness it, that really blew me away. Mm. That, that I don't need butter or cream and oil to make an incredible meal. Mm. Interesting, because uh, the yeah. oil can be distraction, right? If it's the food has so much flavor yeah. and then umami, which we can have another episode because I know you are so into it and you create all umami products. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. Um, it's it, funny. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of hiding. It's kind of hiding. You get the chefs, obviously, who use a lot of butter. Sure, it tastes good, but try using zero butter. Let's see what you got. Mm. It's, it's hard. So... That was kind of a cool thing for me. Mm, right. All right. So maybe we can just do another <laughs> discussion of fat versus umami. And then mm, yeah, great battle. What a battle. Yeah, sure, <laughs> right. sure. Okay. So uh, we'll take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll dive into David's soulful work at the Shibumi restaurant. So please stay with us. Today's program is brought to you by Corin, supplier of Japanese chef knives and restaurant supplies. Corin is proud of their Japanese culture and traditions, but they want you to know that their products are not just for Japanese restaurants. Their knives and tableware bring out the best qualities of food from every culture and fit into every restaurant, from French to Pan-Asian to American, and that is why they are located in New York City, where people from every country in the world come to eat. Corin's Tribeca showroom is home to the most extensive collection of Japanese chef knives in the world, including Japan. Stop by to view the exquisitely designed tableware and the wireless natural sharpening stones. They have a whole range of knife services, from repair and rust removal to reshaping and realigning. Corin is dedicated to this ideal, bringing the highest quality Japanese design to your table, so you can experience the unparalleled quality of Japanese craftsmanship in your home or restaurant. For more information, visit corin.com. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats on Heritage Radio Network, HRN. I'm your host, Eki Katayama, and my guest today is David Schlosser, who is the chef owner of Shibumi in downtown LA. So you opened Shibumi in downtown LA in 2016. So what was your goal when you opened Shibumi? Gosh, my main goal was to combat fusion, really. Um, 
Japan, uh, America is very famous, or LA is even more famous for changing the cuisine to adapt to the American palate. And it really bothered me because when I went to Japan, it was such a different landscape than how Japanese restaurants are presented in Los Angeles or the United States for that matter. So my goal was to show extreme respect and try to make the cuisine as pure as possible without fucking it up and changing it and using my own ego to express what I think is cool. Like, stop that. You know, let's just try to make it and make it right and beautiful. It's good. So why would you change it? Why do you manipulate it? Um, mm. it's, to me, it's because you don't understand it. If you have an emotional relationship to a culture or to a cuisine, you actually won't fucking change it. I don't think you will. So that's kind of, for me, I just would never do that. So Shibumi was trying to, and still tries to express, you know, Japan to mm. American people. Right. Well, it makes sense, right? Because you're um, like submerged in Japanese, most essential, um, like very concentrated version of Japanese cuisine. So you probably don't want to dilute it in any form because you know, um, that's the essence. It, it just think about it. Like I'm going to, to Miyamaso or Kicho in the middle of Kyoto. And then I come back to LA and I take that, what I learned and fuck it up by putting oil and <laughs> I don't know, sauces and getting all creative. Did you see the menu, the movie? It's like, you know, it's just stupid. It's just like, it's really dumb. Mm. So why would I do that? If you respect it and love it, just do it the right way. Well, I think, uh, well, just because you know the opposite side of, you know, the Michelin style French cuisine. So that's how you actually manage to distinguish what is supposed to be to purify the flavor in Japanese way versus French way. Because you can do both, but you decided not to do it. So that's coming yeah, out of yes. your background. Right. So yeah. what does Shibumi mean? And why did you, you name your restaurant Shibumi? So shibumi has a, a few different uh, definitions. The kanji for shibu is uh, bitter, um, and then miwa taste. So the the literal definition is bitter taste, but um, it's also representing creative restraint in the arts. Was the definition that really gravitated towards me mm. to try to not be creative, to just do it classy way. It's like a it's like a woman wearing a black dress, you know, mm. can be just as beautiful and powerful than a, a woman that has all this other elaborate clothing or makeup on. Mm. Right. Just understated, um, not flashy, just done properly. Right. Yeah, when they say, uh, you know, in Japan people say that person is shibui, um, that means that you know, that person has a good taste and you really have to spend some time to understand the depths of it. It's almost like a very, very cool style. So that's Shibumi. Mm. So I really thought you Shibumi, you have a Shibumi to name your restaurant Shibumi. So that's why oh, I'm thanks. studying. Thank right. you. Mm. So Shibumi is a couple style restaurant. So what is couple and why did you choose the couple style for your own restaurant? Well, I guess since I was working at Kaiseki restaurants in Japan, I just felt that it was too advanced for Americans. I even spoke to a lot of Japanese people in, in 
Kyoto and Tokyo. And it just, it's, it's pretty advanced, the understanding and story. And izakaya is amazing, and we all eat at izakaya all the time. Um, has not as many rules, and kaiseki has a thousand rules. So kapo to me was the perfect middle place where it's, you know, it's a little bit of kaiseki, a little bit of izakaya. It's right in the middle, um, but it's rooted in kaiseki uh, rules. Um, and it's also a counter cooking. So you have the chefs in front of you, like at a sushi. So I thought that was very fun mm. when I would dine at those places. And that's why we did it that way. Mm, right. Yeah, kapo is a really good uh, concept, right? Like you said, and it's more personal, like served often at the counter seating. And you can have a conversation with the chef like you. And you can really uh, have a good time, quality time. So... Yeah, that's very cool. Mm. And uh, so what is your philosophy of cooking and specifically cooking Japanese cuisine? So when we write the menu at Shibumi, we change it um, currently every three months strictly. Um, and what we do is when we write the menu, we take the ingredients that are available for the season and we make the menu based on something raw, boiled, steamed, fried, and... Um, What's the last one? Grilled. So when you have every, I guess, cooking technique on your meal, then you will be fully satisfied. Mm. So if you have everything fried, you feel heavy, everything raw, maybe you need something. So a lot of the couple base or kaiseki base is having every cooking technique. So that is how we kind of approach Shubumi's menu development. Mm, right. Yeah, and then if you have uh, like gomi goshoku goho, like five different ways to cook, you can enjoy different colors. And uh, I think your nourishment is maximized because different kind of use of heat can preserve certain nutrition. And I, I heard it's really a healthy way to dine too. So that's awesome. Yeah. Right. So maybe uh, you can give us some examples of your dishes at Shibumi. And that reflect your philosophy? Okay, so for example, we have a tempura now. So mochi is kind of eaten in the New Year time. Um, so we, we're actually doing something fun with mochi in which we're doing a tempura. Of, so we have a round mochi and we stuff it with anko, which is the red bean paste that has just a little bit of sugar, not much, and make kind of like a sandwich. Um, stu stuffed, and then we do tempura with that, um, and then we dip in um, in a soy sauce at tsuyu, um, tensuyu, which is a dashi soy sauce mix, and it just kind of gets dipped in there and served on a plate. Mm. Um, you know, simple, kind of fun, a little bit wintertime feeling with the mochi, mm. and just a couple ingredients, you know, so... That's a good example of the tempura, or uh, one of the dishes. Mm. Right. Yeah, I like the idea of putting uh, the, you know, the red azuki beans, sweetened. Mm. And uh, it's like a hearty, this, this weather, we need that. Especially some places like in New York. I'm not sure about the LA right now, the temperature. But sounds great. Um, so the... Um, I heard that you make many classic Japanese ingredients by yourself, like mm -hmm. uh, shokara, karasumi, 
miso. So could you tell us about your favorite homemade ingredients and why do you make them by yourself? I mean, I'm sure you can purchase, but you don't, so... Yeah, I mean, everybody is getting karasumi or they know about it because botarga is popular, the Italian thing. Um, my favorite, um, if it's made perfectly, is a tofuyo. Uh, tofuyo is a classic chinmi from Okinawa in which we make fresh tofu and we press it and then marinate it with awamori, which is the Okinawan rice distillate, um, with um, red, uh, red shiokoji. Um, we basically uh, ferment uh, red koji with um, with water and salt for about a year. And then we make this like mash. And then we mix the tofu with this red uh, koji mash and alamori. And we let that sit for six months. And the results are, yeah, incredible. Mm, that's yeah. The, what we are talking about, like layered and layered flavors of different kinds of umami. Yeah, this is like an... Where dashi is like in a delicate, beautiful umami, <laughs> tofuyo is the opposite, where it's like really rich, layered, advanced umami mm, right. flavors. And also, Okinawa has a different climate. It's so much more semi-tropical, so their intensity and flavor is a little different. And uh, it's very cool mm-hmm. that you picked dish from Okinawa because that they have amazing, unique dishes too. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to do about 10 different chinmi uh, in the restaurant at all times. Mm. So how, how do you define chinmi to listeners? Uh, so chinmi is defined by generally something fermented. And so salt, salt is, is pretty much always involved with chinmi. And then moisture is removed. So it's a delicate balance of flavoring something and then adding salt and removing moisture and then letting it cure for many months. So for example, um, skudani is, is a very good example. So if you cook a skudani of sardine or shiitake mushroom, I know there's a lot of soy sauce, right? So when you start cooking it with sake and soy sauce and mirin, it's actually too salty. And what happens is if you let it sit for about six months to a year and two years, even two years, it's so nice and it becomes mild and very mellow and relaxed, the, t- the flavors. Um, and that's kind of unusual where the chef will complain, chef, too salty. I said, no, try my one year age one. And then it, <laughs> it's the same recipe, right? But it changes. It's kind of like a wine that just needs to rest and relax, mm. a big Bordeaux or something, um, and then become something special. Um, I don't know molecularly what goes on um, with when you make a, a skudani or you know we do a dish with scallops um, you know raw scallop doesn't taste like anything on your tongue um, but when you remove the moisture the Chinese are very classical at this at doing a dried scallop preparation it becomes an explosion of flavors on your tongue that can protect the anosinic acid that's present in the seafood mm, right so Jimmy and uh, for listeners listen listening and they hear the, the sound. I mean, the word chimmy, chimmy is like usually like a delicacy. So like, you know, David makes, it takes a lot of work, but then the result is very rare and then you don't find it everywhere, but it's so worth trying and very, I think it's very culturally packed idea, regional cuisine. And um, 
it's really worth trying. It's so it's Jimmy. Okay, so um, so you have run Shibumi for seven years now. So hmm. do you see any changes in customer demographics and their palate? Yes. So, well, I guess when COVID happened, we kind of switched the model. So COVID, pre-COVID, we did omakase and a la carte. Uh, and post-COVID, we took off the a la carte for different reasons. Um, what happened then was the, the clientele did change because the check, uh, the check average has gone up. And we still have the devoted, uh, I guess, Japanophiles uh, eating at Shibumi every week. Um, but I guess it's just people with a little more money because it's more expensive. That's mm -hmm. really it. I can't really tell other than anything else. Mm -hmm. Right. But people prefer, I mean, the popular dishes are the same or how, I mean, you know, Japanese cuisine has been becoming more and more popular. I'd imagine, especially places like LA, people are more curious about something like chimmi or something they never known before beyond sushi. And uh... mm -hmm. Yeah, the menus are about the same. The philosophy really... Uh really hasn't changed at all. Um, the hard part is really coming up with the new dishes every three months. Mm -hmm. It's a challenge every year. <laughs> How creative is one supposed to be, you know? Mm -hmm. Right. Well, actually, I'm looking at your menu, and you have four different tasting uh, menus, like Ikkyu's meal, Taisho's meal, Shogun's meal, Emperor's meal. So what kind of, you know, each, each, each meal has a theme. What kind of theme do you place? In each course, um, you know, when it uh, starts doing like the the more expensive meals, then the customer obviously expects a little fancier protein, something like that. So, you know, currently, I don't know if you're looking at this menu. We have matsuzaka beef on the menu, so we're the only restaurant right now in Southern California serving. It's the rarest beef in Japan, so that is you know a great for the our our guests. They get to try this, um, so that would be on the more expensive meal. Um, and then we have a $125 menu um, that will do maybe unagi or duck or, you know, maybe a little uh, better priced um, dish. So we can give the customers, you know, different pricing options, which is good. Right. Good yeah. So that the Matsuzaka beef is an emperor's meal. So by the way, the Matsuzaka gyu is uh, basically Matsuzaka uh, beef or Matsuzaka gyu. That means... Uh, beef from Matsutaka, and it's Wagyu beef. It's not Washu. Washu is a you know, blend of American heritage and Japanese heritage uh, growing in America, but Wagyu is from Japan. So your Matsutaka uh, beef is from Japan. And, uh, yes. right? and I, I had a, I attended an event um, where I could meet actual grower, a farmer of the beef, and then he names his beef a name, I mean, like actual name, <laughs> like, like these daughters. So, yeah, I was impressed. It's the people say, like, you know, they the beef, bag you beef, get massage or drink beer or something. It's not a joke. They really take care of beef. So, that's why you get the whole Tori, like, gem like marbled uh, texture and fat. So, mm -hmm. like, well, that's the natural fat, not the added fat, like butter or olive oil. That's the inheritant uh, right. fat from the animal, which is very good. So anyway, so, so I'm very impressed. I've never been to Shibumi, so I have to 
create a trip oh. to LA <laughs> because I've never been to LA just except for just once uh, several years ago. So mm. yeah, I look forward to my opportunity. Please. And so what is the biggest challenge in serving authentic Japanese food in LA? Uh, gosh, you know, we're doing something different. I think anybody doing something different in life is, is a challenge. Um, to be honest, I think after seven years, I'm a bit disappointed. There hasn't been more, uh, couple restaurants opening. Um, it's still the same fusion Japanese shit that, uh, yeah. So it's an uphill battle and we're here to kind of, you know, show the Japanese way, but we're actually in the middle of working on uh, another project, which is going to be a Shibumi Izakaya mm. that we're looking to be opening this year. Um, more information on that soon, but um, that's, if we do that, it's going to be great because the price points will be very different. And now it's just, you have a greater reach of clientele of people. Mm. You go out. Right. And you can really communicate the true, um, genuine more. flavor of Japanese cuisine and dilute it. So, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. And then it's interesting, right? Because you have um, a mission to educate people, uh, inspire people with Japanese authentic flavors. So, and then you are appointed as a culinary ambassador by the Japanese mm -hmm. government in 2020. So, uh, what's, what's your job? What's your mission for this? Yeah, I mean, the pressure's already there. So, this has already kind of increased the pressure when the government uh, came to me about this appointment, um, especially since there's only 10 in the United States that is, has this appointment. So I guess what they're expecting me to do is to continue to promote uh, Japanese cuisine in the way I've been doing it. And they are asking me to do um, events throughout the year um, in which they would like me to, to participate um, but as long as I'm continuing to promote Japanese cuisine in its pure form, um, they would like me to be, you know, continue the relationship with them. Mm, right. So I'm very honored on that. Mm. Well, the Japanese government got lucky to find you. And you really know the essence of it. And you have a very objective view. Again, you are trained classically in French cuisine too. So I think mm. you are very objective view counts rather than Japanese chef comes from Japan and try to do something. There's a really um, different mindset there. So yeah, I think you all, what you do is amazing and very precious. So yeah, so I'm, I'm, I really look forward to your izakaya too. Yes, thank you, Akiko, thank you. Right, so, so what are your plans for the future? And um, you know, besides the izakaya, or you can talk more uh, about the izakaya too, if you want. Well, I mean, I, I don't know. You know, seven years now, so we're, yeah, we're ready to, to open something else. Um, the izakaya is going to be a big project. Um, I don't want to mention too many details because we're, we're still working on them now. Um, but we're thinking of opening this summer in Echo Park um, in LA. Um, but uh, aside from that... Uh, Professionally, not many plans that much. You know, if we could open up um, this izakaya successfully, we'd like to, you know, promote more Japanese cuisine. That's mm. what I have so right. far. 
Okay, unlike Japanese chefs say, you're the student for life of certain culinary yeah. um, pursuit, I think. So, right. and then do you get to go to Japan? I mean, you're planning to go to Japan or, you know, as a Yeah, part? so I, I went last uh, August and then I'm probably going to be going in March or April again. Mm. Wow, good time. So, so I try to go a couple times a year, yeah, something like that. Right. And what do you do when you go? You, do you try to dine out? Do you try to starge or what do you do? Mm. I basically try to dine out and meet my old friends and get some more ceramics. Oh. Uh, main things. Um, also, I spent so many years in Tokyo and Kyoto, so I'm trying to explore different uh, parts of Japan as well mm. when I go. I went to Kanazawa and it was just great. So there's just some, there's obviously so much to see. Um, if it's the winter time, then of course I'll go. I'll go snowboarding as well. Right, <laughs> right, amazing. So, all right. So keep me posted, and maybe you can come back and discuss a lot of other things and share your knowledge and experience with Japanese cuisine with our listeners. Will do. Thanks, Akiko. Thank you. So, where can we find your updates online and on social media? So at Shibumi DTLA is probably the best place to find us. And then you can also subscribe on our uh, website. Uh, we send out a newsletter about once a month. Some things going on. Okay, great. Then you can uh, get the update about the izakaya. Mm -hmm. right. Absolutely. All right. Mm -hmm. So, all right. So thank you so much for joining us today, David. Thank you. All right, listeners, if you have any questions or comments about the show or suggestions for show topics or guests, please contact us at japaneeds at heritageradionetwork.org or akikotema.com. Japanese is a weekly program and is always available at heritageradionetwork.org as well as on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify as a podcast. Our engineer is Amin Spenjan, and thanks for listening. I will see you next week. Japanese is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.